0: If you brought your copy of God's Word with you this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 10. We left off last week in chapter 10, verse 1, and uh, so we're going to be picking up there, kind of a continuation of last week's message. So, the uh, the commissioning of the twelve we began last week, and so today is going to be part two on that of the commissioning of the twelve disciples. And last week, perhaps you, if you were here with us, um, I'm hopeful that you remember, we saw Jesus um, feeling, it said, he was looking out over the people there in the region of Galilee, whatever point that they were at at this point, it says that Jesus was feeling compassion for the people. So we know that Jesus was feeling um, a compassion for lost people, he, he referred to them as sheep without shepherd. And seeing the condition, the spiritual condition, the spiritual blight that had um, overtaken the nation of Israel by the time he has shown up on the scene, he's feeling uh, rather um, sick to his stomach, is what I mentioned last week. We looked at this word here for compassion, and um, this feeling of compassion isn't... we. In the West, we typically think of things in terms of our heart and our mind, like, oh, I just I feel something in my heart. Our compassion is in our mind and our heart. In the ancient uh, world, they felt things in a guttural sense. Um, and so we looked at uh, splanchno last week, its usage as a noun, and it referred to the intestines, to the bowels. I was thinking about my father-in-law here. He told me a story years ago. Um, missionary work in the Philippines amongst the Manobo people so they had to move into this tribe of individuals who spoke a language they had no written language at all with Wycliffe they go in they learn your language and they translate the scriptures and so he and Helen his wife they went to the to the Manobo people and in the and I remember he's telling me in doing translation work when it got to the the idea of loving the Lord your God with all your heart we we kind of have an understanding of what that is, and so we kind of tap our chest, like we love him with all our heart. Well, in, with the Manobo people, the seat of their emotions was their bowels, so the translation had to say, love the Lord your God with all your gallbladder, and they got it. But if you had said with your heart, that would have been a confusing translation for them, and they would have missed it. And so <clears throat> this, what Jesus is doing when he expresses that he had, feels compassion from them, in his splatina, from, his, from the, the guttural part of his body, he literally was feeling sick of compa- having compassion for people who were like sheep without shepherd, because their spiritual condition was so poor. And, um, and so we recognize there that Jesus, and again, I think I made mention last week, and this is so important for us to understand. When Jesus is looking out across this, this mass of humanity there, and we, we've seen clearly as we've been walking through Matthew so far, extremely large crowds followed Jesus. And in that Galilean region, there were, there were literally millions of individuals in a very large section of this Galilean region. And so they were, the, 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 the man with the healing ministry, he was busy doing ministry day and night. And the, there was very little rest for the healer. And Jesus recognizes uh, when he looks out on this, this mass of humanity, he's not being selective and thinking thoughts like, I feel compassion for those who are going to ultimately be my sheep. I know who they are because I'm God and I have the mind of God. I mentioned last week, it's like you know, he didn't have the Tony Stark glasses that you can put on and then little laser beams go out with little halos to go over the heads of those who will become the elect or who are the elect. Jesus didn't have those glasses on. He looked out and he saw this massive humanity, and he's saying to his disciples in this passage in this passage that we're dealing with here, he's commissioning them to move them out into this same group of people who need to respond favorably to his message, the gospel, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Their long-awaited Messiah has shown up, and they need to respond favorably to this. And I also mentioned <clears throat> last week the, the significance of what Jesus is doing here in the commissioning of the twelve and his feeling compassion for them. Jesus has been healing multitudes, literally thousands upon thousands of people have been miraculously healed. And when Jesus looks out on this crowd, he doesn't say, I feel compassion for them because there's so many of them who are still physically ill and still physically in need of healing. And I need to get more people with the ability to heal, to get out there to heal them because that's their greatest need after all. Jesus' statement was that they were like sheep without a shepherd. He's looking at them with his God goggles on and realizing that I have something that's of a spiritual benefit for their life that's far superior than the simple physical healing aspect that they were receiving. Now, when I say simple... I mentioned last week that for the individual who has the need for healing that's probably the greatest thing that they can think of is what their need would be would be to have their 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 life restored in whatever capacity that would be right however Jesus being God he sees that there's a, even a greater need than that and as I've mentioned even with the individuals that were raised back to life from the dead what what, what what's gonna happen to them yet again they're going to face physical death a second time, right? So even the, the, the raising of someone back to, from, from death to life, that's not a permanent condition that does that, that, that individual favorably unless in that second, <laughs> when he brings them back to life, if they repent of their sins and recognize their greatest need, which is the ultimate healing of the soul, of being made right with God, so that when they die, they won't face the second death and they can spend eternity with God. And that seems to be clearly the, uh, the, the, the theme that Jesus is working here with his 12 and the commissioning of these 12 and sending them out to do the very work that he was doing, the work of preaching and healing. Because the preaching ministry that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the preaching of this gospel that was confirmed by signs and wonders that only God could do was to lead people at a heart level to recognize they needed God. They needed a repentance of their heart before God so that they could spend eternity with God forever and ever. And he needed more help in that harvest of lost souls. So he prayed he asked the disciples to pray that the Lord, that the, that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers, workers out into the harvest. And little did they know, or perhaps they did, because he already told them that I'm going to make you become fishers of men. Perhaps they had already made the connection. That basically we're saying we're praying to Jesus, Lord Jesus, would you be pleased to send me out into the harvest as a laborer with this gospel message? And the obvious answer is going to be yes. That's the very purpose for which I've drawn you to myself and saved you, opened your eyes to see so that you can then be a blessing to others like that as well. So Jesus has them set up uh, to become and be those fishers of men that he said that he was going to make them become if they chose to follow him. And so in this commissioning, it's kind of like it's time to fish or cut bait, that kind of a situation. And so this morning, we're gonna pick up uh, where we left off last week with this commissioning with a very public ministry that Jesus had with them. We saw this in verse 1, this summoning. We just talked about that. He summoned the 12. And I just wanted to make quick mention to this again. It's just 12. It's 12. He had 12 disciples. Jesus Handpicked these 12 individuals. Sometimes we can wrongly look at a passage like this in Matthew and say, well, since the disciples were given authority, aren't all of God's children given authority when they come to faith in Jesus to have a ministry like this? And the simple answer is no, we are not. We are not to be confused and think that the, that the commissioning of these 12 includes us. So the application for a passage like this, we're not looking to bridge some cultural application into my life to say, I too need to go out and I too need to do what? Cleanse the leper and raise the dead, right? I, I'm not to be confused with who these 12 are. They are the capital A apostles. The, word, the Greek word for apostle is just one who is sent. Jesus particularly sent these 12. You remember what happened when Judas hung himself? In Acts chapter 1, it says that they needed to find somebody that would replace Judas, right? And it specifically said that individual, the, the capital A apostleship, had to be somebody that was present at Jesus' baptism and had been a part of his, his public ministry from day one all the way through. And they put two men forward, they prayed, the Lord selected, and... The, 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 the individual was added. Just his name slipped my brain. My, my, Matthias, thank you. Was added to that number of the capital A apostles. So we're not to wrongly assume that this kind of ministry that Jesus is sending them out to do, as it says, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. We have people today that want to go out and try to do the casting out of Demons. Want to cast out the demon of lust. Well, if you cast it out, it sure seems like it came back immediately. I mean, have you ever noticed that, like in your own heart? Um, Some of these things that supposedly get cast out, demons of lust, demons of greed, demons of gluttony, demons of... And people want to go out and cast those things out. But unfortunately, the person, if they fall over, when they get back up, they still have a problem with the same sinful flesh because you can't cast out sinful flesh. We are told to do what with our flesh? To kill it. To kill its desires. And that's a progressive work that we do daily. Day by day, we are putting to death deeds of the flesh. That doesn't get cast out. You see, God made us men and women, and He put within men a desire for a woman. You're not going to cast out a very natural, normative desire that God put in you that needs to be fulfilled in marriage exclusively. that's not going to get cast out. We were made in the image of God, and we were made to procreate male and female. He created them. Go populate the earth. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're burning in lust, take a wife. Right? So this whole idea of that we are supposed to somehow have this exact same kind... Well, listen, they were casting out demons that were throwing peoples in fire, they were frothing at the mouth, they were destroying people's lives. That's not something that we have been given this authority to do. The 12 were given that very authority to do that and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. They had a very unique ministry, and every bit of this ministry is prior to Jesus going to the cross. Some of you probably are thinking, yeah, but you know, what about the gift of the Holy Spirit after the cross? The gift of the, the indwelling Holy Spirit that God gave some these particular gifts. And, and it says that some of them were signs and wonders or healings, right? But have you noticed the distinction between what's happening here and what is happening when Paul is teaching the church in Corinth? Paul said very explicitly to the church in Corinth that those gifts, whether they were sign gifts or whether it was the gift of administration or the gift of giving or the gift of helps, whatever that particular spiritual gift was, it says very specifically that those gifts were given for the edification of the church. Of the church. This right here is before the church was even established or founded. So when this, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit gifts came at baptism following Pentecost, those gifts of healing were to be of edification and benefit for those in the church. These right here, these men are being sent out into the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They're, they're moving out, not into the church, they're moving out amongst the lost people who need to hear the gospel and respond favorably. So even in that context, there's a distinction that we need to rightly understand and make application to. So what we see here with these 12, this is not something that we need to think, oh, we, we have the, the ability to go out and do these things, as well as become, verse 2, do I have verse 2? Not yet. I will. I'll get there in a second. As well as wrongly perceive that perhaps we can become like his apostles, capital A, uppercase apostles. Are we lowercase a apostles? Well, I mean, you could be uh, Cade, Cade Coffee. Remember Cade Coffee Was with us here two years, had a desire to go overseas, to take the gospel to people who had less access to the gospel. Remember Cade? And we sent Cade, right? One who was sent, lowercase a apostle. He got sent. He was just a sent one. This church sent him, and he's over in Jordan in the Middle East. He's one that's been sent by a church. Lowercase apostle. He's not to be confused that he's going to go over there and have this kind of apostolic, large case, a ministry amongst the people there in Jordan. But let me tell you, if he did, man, do you think he would be getting the attention of of the Jordanese people? Absolutely. If he started walking through the towns of Jordan and like Peter, his shadow was just falling on people as he walked by them and they were being healed just off of his shadow. Do you not think that Cade Coffee would be the cat's meow over in Jordan right now? He'd be the bee's knees, man. Everybody would be at Cade Coffee's door wanting some of Cade Coffee's healing ministry. Guarantee you. Doesn't work that way. And that's freeing to know now in tulsa oklahoma we're kind of inundated with some of these cares more charismatic concepts are we not we have training centers for this in certain schools in the local area that uh, train people to kind of try to do what these individuals do but as we're going to see it's actually impossible and if it were possible I'm, i promise you you would know who those individuals were without question wherever they were living on planet earth right now. Do I have yep, this little thing right here? This little thing right here can visually connect you to almost any place in the world, right? Yes. If there was somebody out there doing what these twelve were doing, let me let me guarantee you it would be all over TikTok. <coughs> guarantee you. And we'd be going, whoa, look at this guy. You know, uh, Justin Peters might have his crew take him over to wherever said individual was just to get in his shadow, just so that the shadow of that man or woman could fall on him and he could hop out of his wheelchair. Or Johnny Accentada. The list could go on and on and on. Anybody in here in need of a healing today? You would get yourself on that plane or wherever it might be and you would go there. So the shadow of that man could fall on you like Peter's did and you could be made well. They were healing people in the droves, hundreds probably daily. They were continually surrounded by large crowds of individuals clamoring for for the feedings and the healings without question. And so Jesus is commissioning these individuals, these 12 disciples who are his apostles for this very particular ministry, a tough ministry at that. This right here is just for summoning. We're not going to do that. Go look, look at last week's message. I've already talked too long. I've already, I've, already, I've already dealt with that, so we're going to move on to this one. Let me just show you a couple of verses post the cross of how these apostles still had this kind of ministry and how it's distinguished from the the, the giving of the Holy Spirit for the edification of the church, these individuals still had that same level of uh, apostolic authority that Jesus particularly gave them to do the things that they were doing in Acts 2. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were taking place through who? Who? the apostles. The apostles had a very specific and particular authority that was granted to them amongst people because these are the men that ultimately are taking this message to the world. Jesus says right here, he's going to say, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Start where you are right now. But these are going to be the same guys that he says, start in Judea and take it to the uttermost parts of the world. And they were the church planters. And so they had the ability to do signs and wonders at the hands of the apostles. Acts 4, and with great power, stating it just a little bit differently, the apostles were bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Again, we see apostolic authority. They don't capitalize it, but we would say capital A apostleship here, the 12 Jesuses. Now, Acts 5, now at the hands, at the hands of the apostles, Many signs and wonders were happening among the people. And they were all in one accord in Solomon's portico. They continued to have the same kind of ministry that Jesus had of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, the authority to do signs and wonders, to validate that this message is referring to him who was raised from the dead, Jesus the Lord. And by the way, whenever you continue in the book of Acts, there in chapter 5, verse 12, by the time you get to verse 18, this is why we see the religious leaders of Israel specifically seeking to shut these apostles down. It says there in verse 18, so just a few verses later, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. They're trying to shut down this ministry that Jesus sent them out to accomplish. They are still going about raising the dead, cleansing the leopard, healing everybody that came into their purview. They had a very active ministry of the miraculous. And so this is why when we get to Matthew chapter 10, verse two, it says, "Now the names of these, and it goes from disciples in verse one to these 12, They're called apostles here. These are the ones, the sent ones from Jesus himself. Peter, I mean, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, named last here. And by the way, we're going to see in just a second. Do you remember what Judas' job was amongst the twelve? He was the treasurer. He was the the guy that kept the the money bag for the disciples. Well, we're going to see a little bit in our text today that's indicative of how they got those funds, how they got that money. And uh, Judas, obviously, was made the treasurer for a very particular purpose later in uh, in his life. Now, in verses 5 and 6, as we continue on from here, we're going to see Jesus sending them out, these 12 apostles his chosen disciples whom he is sending out as sent ones capital A apostles into this large Galilean region to the villages to the cities in order to preach the same message verse 5 and 6 again notice these 12 it's being Matthew is being very particular 12 12 12 these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them saying do not go in the way of the gentiles and do not enter any city of the samaritans but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of israel now in in picking up on the theme of jesus seeing the crowd as sheep without a shepherd it seems that he is now narrowing the scope Of his disciples preaching ministry exclusively as we see right here to the lost sheep it says of the house of Israel he said do not go in the way of the Gentiles does that feel a little bit harsh for us Gentiles I don't like that well don't go to the don't go to the Gentiles and don't go to the Samaritans but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel a simple way of understanding why Jesus does this. Why does he narrow in so particularly at this point? I think it's kind of obvious the reason why Jesus does this. Number one, Jesus is the Messiah rooted in Jewish what? History. In the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus is the central figure of their eschatologic hope of being the Messiah who's going to come from the Jewish nation to and for the Jewish nation. And as such, Jesus' advent would be thus the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. Not to mention that these 12 are also all Jewish, and these 12 are also all of the house of Israel. And as of yet in this ministry that Jesus has with them, let's just be honest about it, uh, these 12 are, are, are what we would call maybe a little bit racist, They don't like the Gentile dogs or the Samaritans who were the half-breeds between Gentiles and Jews. They really despise them. They prefer to have nothing to do with those individuals. Jesus hasn't quite got to the place of the training of the 12 where they're going to realize that no, ministry is going to include them. As a matter of fact, you go from Jesus saying right here in verse 6 to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. By the time you get to Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission, who's he saying go to? He's saying go to all the the ethnos, go to all the nations. So his training, yeah, go to everybody. So his training of these 12, it's still in play. He hasn't finished his training of these 12 just yet. So the easy and simple reason, rather than trying to come up with a really hard distinction dispensationally, I heard this um, a few times that you see he only sent them to the Jews. He didn't, Jesus wasn't sent and he didn't send his guys after Gentiles or Samaritans. And had they actually accepted him as their Messiah, he would have immediately ushered in the kingdom right then and there. I'm <laughs> like, oh man, that kind of misses the, all that Old Testament stuff that says that the Gentiles will put their hope in him. Now, I ain't got time to go into that today. That'd be more of an excursus sermon that we might get to at some point. But the case being, the simplest understanding is that these Jewish 12 men had a disdain for Gentiles. And by the way, we already see that Jesus did a miracle with who? A Gentile centurion, his servant, right? So Jesus has already kind of demonstrated that he's not anti the Gentile or perhaps a Samaritan. He's just telling these 12 that right now we're, where they're at in their training, they just need to turn around and look at it. And look, you're going to see all these people in the Galilean region, almost probably 99.5% of whom, I'm, I don't know, it's a bad percentage, I shouldn't do it that way, but they're primarily Jewish. Go to them. There's no need to to walk out of the Galilean region and somehow get over into the Gentile area or go up into Samaria. There's no need to do that. There's millions of people that we've already seen and we've already had ministry with. Just turn around and go to those individuals. I think that that's the simplest understanding of what Jesus is doing here in commissioning these 12, particularly to go to them. Obviously the Jews had a place of prominence in that they were the possessors of the covenants of promise of God in the Old Testament without question, right? And so he's starting there with them. We saw Matthew kind of predicate this when we were beginning this book in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 when he talked about the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ who's the son of David and the son of Abraham both of which have unilateral covenants in the Old Testament where God swore by himself he would fulfill those They weren't a bilateral covenant like the Mosaic Covenant These were covenants that God said this will happen and I'm swearing on myself on my own name and my own reputation This will take place. This is the line from which Jesus comes from so Jesus obviously is rooted particularly in the covenantal language of the Old Testament and he's the fulfillment of Of both of these, Jesus is. The Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. And this is why Paul said things like he said there post-resurrection, post-the-cross to the church in Rome. I'm not ashamed of this gospel, this gospel of the kingdom, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And notice, to who first? The Jew first. And then also to the Greek but he particularly says it right there, to the Jew first. This is exactly what we see Jesus doing in Matthew 10, 5, and 6, prioritizing the Jewish nation to be the first people to whom he sent his disciples. And there's some very practical reasons for why he did that. And there's also some very theologic reasons why he did that as well. But we know, as Paul taught the Romans, that God's not a God who shows partiality, right? God's not a God who shows partiality. When you get to Romans chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, Paul says that there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. And notice, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. Now, a Jewish person, we don't want to be first on this one. I, I don't like first place there. So it's not like a... A partial thing, it's just an ordering that Jesus came, he sent his disciples to the Jew first, they were the possessors of the covenants of God, Jesus was the fulfiller of those covenants, they still had a lot to learn, Peter in Acts 10 with Cornelius, he has to have a sheet come down from heaven, he says Lord I've never eaten any unth- anything unclean he was so Jewish in his roots to the core that Jesus had to thump him on the head to say listen man you're also here to take this gospel to Gentiles as well, and if I've said they're clean they're clean, okay Lord What you say, goes. They still had some training that they needed to get through in order to get through their heads that it's also to the Greek and that they're going to be grafted in. See Romans chapter 10 and 11. But we're not to get cocky about that fact because we could be cut off as they were cut off and they could be rooted in like we've been rooted in. We've already done the book of Romans, right? Later. But notice, glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Notice 11, this is where I was going, for what? There's no partiality with God. So this first thing, first, the Jews first, there's nothing overly particular to that other than the fact that Jesus was sending his 12 to these Jewish people. They were Jews of the covenants of God. It's that simple. God's not God that shows partiality. Jesus came to die for the lost of the world. Amen? It's that simple. And we, and we see this distinction being made very, very clear. But there in Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus did say, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and in, and in obedience, that's exactly what they did. Notice verse 7 now. Jesus, after saying this, he says, now, now go, preach. Preach, saying that the kingdom of heaven's at hand. The, the central message... As we have seen from John the Baptist, through Jesus, and now Jesus to these 12, as he sends them out, this speaking ministry of preaching, of teaching, it's the same. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that's kind of a truncated way of saying a lot, isn't it? I mean, just saying, I don't think that they were just going around and and just repeating that mantra kind of like we sometimes, mantra uh, as a mantra, say the Lord's Prayer or something. I don't think that they were just going around and just saying, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. The kingdom of heaven's at hand. In case you didn't hear, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Of course they didn't do that. These guys have been following Jesus around for quite some time, and they've been learning what his preaching and teaching ministry looked like, and I believe that they went out doing the exact same thing, but the kingdom of heaven being at hand is a good way of describing that more broader message, that central message that Jesus had already been preaching and that they had learned from him. So I'm sure that their preaching and teaching ministry probably resembled that of Jesus' teaching and, pre- and preaching ministry. And where do we see the greatest example of that that we've, Matthew's already shown us in his gospel so far would be the Sermon on the Mount, right? So the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus went out preaching and teaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then we get one, uh, Matthew gives us one of such sermons, and he kind of writes it, and it gets inscripturated for us. And so the fact that these individuals are sent out to preach and say the same thing that Jesus says lets me think rightly, I believe, that they went out and they preached sermons that sounded an awful lot like the Sermon on the Mount as they went out preaching and teaching. Because after all, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. And what was the general teaching? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the kingdom of heaven is for people who repent and repentance brings about a change of life and that change of life looks like something and so i really have a feeling that they preach the beautiful beatitude just like jesus did that when you repent this is what new hearts in action are going to look like for people who want to be part of christ's kingdom and he talked about people who are poor in spirit he talked about people who mourned over sin. They, they probably said that they're gentle. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. And ultimately, he probably told them that in following Jesus, you will be persecuted and insulted for righteousness. And man, in that cultural context that they were getting saved out of, was that not the case or what? I mean, I mean, almost like an immediate uh, welcoming of persecution and insults if you were to make a decision as a Jewish person, to follow Christ. Remember what the scribes and Pharisees are already doing? They're already saying that Jesus and now now his disciples, their ability, their power, the supernatural power that they have for signs and wonders, that's not because somehow God must be in this. They're getting this power from the ruler of demons. Satan himself must be empowering them to do this. I mean, it, so, so to, for, for these Jewish individuals to go out and preach to Jews and to say these things to them uh, would have put them in peril very quickly indeed. And I think that we also would have heard in their preaching ministry, uh, not only that it transforms hearts and char- the character of a person, I think we would have also heard in their teaching as they went out that you need to be like, when you come to faith in Jesus, you're going to be like the salt of the earth. You're going to be like the light of the world. Um, you're going to honor marriage and hold it in high esteem. You're going to be people of integrity. You're, you're going to let your yes be yes, and you're going to let your no be no. Um, you're going to be the kind of people that love your enemies and pray for those who mistreat you. You're going to be the kind of people that store up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not on earth because it's impossible to serve both God and money. Oh, and you're not going to, you're going to be the kind of people who are overly anxious for what you're going to wear for your life, what you'll eat, what you'll wear, but instead you're going to seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven's at hand, you're going to seek first his kingdom, you're going to seek first his righteousness above all things. And you're going to be able to rightly judge others by first judging yourself against God's holy standards, and you're going to be the kind of people that treat people the way that you would want them to treat you. The preaching ministry of the twelve assuredly looked and sounded an awful lot like the preaching and teaching that they had heard Jesus doing before them. And it's for this very reason, clearly, that Jesus has granted them the supernatural authority that he gave them so that as they preached that same message that Jesus preached, that they could validate that message in the same way Jesus was validating his message, and that was through signs. Wonders and miracles. Notice verse 8. He sent them out, preach, and then here's what you do after you preach because you're going to be inundated with this heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. We see here in verse 8, Jesus doesn't make a distinction between cleansing lepers, casting out demons, and then also raising dead people. And the reason why is because the power that is needed to do the one is the exact same power that's needed to do the other. It's not an issue of straining harder at the, the apostles, straining harder for the for the bigger kind of miracle, that of raising someone from the dead. I mean, I, I just, I've mentioned it several times, but Peter's shadow would just fall on people and they were being healed. He didn't exert anything. They just were. They, they were granted authority. They They, they were... It's almost like they were individuals that were given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and what they loosed on earth had, was already loosed in the heaven, and what had been loosed in heaven, they could loose on earth. It was almost like they were representatives, or emissaries, or um, individuals that Jesus had particularly left on earth to do the exact same ministry that He Himself had done. Don't you think? So, if they forgave somebody's sin, their sins could be forgiven. What did Jesus say? Jesus said to the paralytic. Son, right, sons, your sins are forgiven. Oh, blasphemous. Well, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to say to this guy, hey, man, which is harder to say, that or pick up your pallet and go home? Which would be harder? Well, obviously, it would be harder to say, take up your pallet and go home because the guy's a paralytic. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven because you can't see that. You can't see that transaction. So Jesus said, so in order that you may know that I have the authority to do this, Hey, brother, get it, take up your pallet and go. And it says the man got up and walked out. I think these disciples were given that same authority that Jesus had. No distinctions of healing sick, of raising dead, whatever it was. And he says right here, freely you received, freely give. Freely received, freely give. Jesus isn't making these disciples... Um, become, if you will, um, I might just use the word, and I'm not trying to use it uh, too crassly here, but he, he's not wanting them to be viewed as charlatans. Um, I've got an eye, I've got an eye healing over here, an eye for 500. Withered hands, 250. What do you need? You need somebody raised from the dead? That, that's a big one. That's gonna be about five grand, 5K. What family wouldn't cough up whatever it was that they needed to make their loved one better after all, right? Jesus didn't send them out with some kind of a proclamation that if you sow your financial seed large enough, the larger your healing will come, your or your minute, or your miracle will come. We see that all over the place today. This idea of sowing your seed. Jesus said, freely you received it, freely give it. It it comes without cost. It's no arms for 500 or legs and limbs for three. No. You freely received, freely give. And so in verse, well, this is what we saw in Acts 12. Again, real quick, at at the hands of these apostles, many signs and wonders were happening many freely you received freely you need to be those who give now what jesus tells them next in light of what he says here in eight freely you received freely give seems to be very informative indeed notice what he says here in verse 9 and 10 Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts does it almost not seem a little bit backwards to what we do do not acquire Uh, the acquiring of things is the going out and the raising and the gathering of such things that you're acquiring I'm sending you out to preach and to heal, to do what I've been doing, but I do not want you to go out and start raising money for your money belts. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. Thanks, Jesus. Do people need a daily sustenance to survive in life? Food? Shelter, that's a pretty natural thing to need. And Jesus is here sending them out, if you will, empty-handed. Or, verse 10, or a bag for your journey. That bag would presumably be a bag that perhaps they would have put food in, or perhaps some of these these clothing items, or even two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worthy of his support. freely you received freely give you're not gonna be charging money like charlatans for what god alone can give freely and you don't need to worry yourselves about taking money with you or even an extra pair of tunics remember or, or yeah the tunics or sandals it's a very large area perhaps there's sandals wear out along the way don't worry about that a worker is worthy of his support it seems here that jesus is telling these twelve Um, that they need to go out with full and complete um, trust in his provision to meet their needs while doing said work of ministry. So here we have Jesus yet again training the 12 to become more dependent on him, to become more dependent on God and of God's provision. And how do we see that God goes about providing and meeting the needs of the worker, who he says the worker is worthy of his support? Clearly implied within this passage is that as they go out as workers into the harvest, which is ripe, they need to be able to find support from individuals that god will bring along their path on their journey who will provide for them gold silver copper uh, food um, if they need tunics or sandals or another staff whatever it might be that they need for their daily requirements for life god will send someone in your path along the way who will take care of that because you as my worker in the harvest are worthy of your support and God will make certain that that takes place is that going to require a lot of faith on their part tremendously tremendously the very next day when they when they're sent out and go they're not taking with them resources they're not taking with them food or money to buy food or money to buy drink immediately they're going out in a place of need and so Jesus tells them then in verse 11, and whatever city or village you enter, you there inquire who's worthy in it and stay there until you leave. Now, the word inquire right here implies that they were to be inquisitive, inquire, of who in that city, who in that village would be worthy of, to become that person that God would use to support you and how else are they going to find out who this worthy person is or these worthy individuals are without inquiring and how are they going to inquire without preaching the word so it almost work, it almost seems like it works like this I'm sending you out to preach <laughs> and in order to make certain that you preach and that you preach the message that I want you to preach When you have properly preached that message and said the things I need you to say, there's going to be individuals who are going to respond favorably to that message and then you're going to know that those are the ones who are worthy. And then whenever you find out those people who are worthy, they've been receptive of the message that you've preached and presented to them and they've seen the power of God coming from you that they know that only God could do. It wasn't demons who gave them that, but it was God. And then you have a conversation at some point in here there's a conversation and they say hey we want you to stay well stay there stay there until you, it's time for you to leave that place god will supply all your needs according to his riches in christ jesus you guys just take off and go and do this and they did and they would do exactly what jesus told them to do and so jesus saying listen whenever you find said individuals who are worthy like this and you go into their house and you're going to stay in their house and they're going to provide for you whatever it is gold silver copper food clothing whatever your needs may be then you do this as you enter the house Give it that house, meaning those in that house, not the dwelling physical dwelling perhaps itself, but those inside the house. Give it your greeting now, a greeting most likely the most common known Jewish greeting was the Shalom, this greeting of this idea of just of, of general peace that that we bring and we and we speak peace over you now, seeing that Jesus had granted these twelve apostles to be his his ambassadors, his emissaries to have the very Authority that, that he himself possessed. It it doesn't say, but I'm thinking, and I could be wrong on this, and I'm willing to be wrong occasionally, but I don't think I am. Think about this. Jesus says, "As you enter that house, give it your peace." These are the guys that shadows fall and people get healed. I think when I think when when they were giving their peace, their shalom. I think that that house felt experienced some kind of a total wellness of body, mind, and spirit and perhaps even a provision of God that became an overwhelming, abundant provision of God. I don't know what that may have looked like in their culture, but I have a strong hunch that God blessed these families that supported these apostles in very favorable ways. How about you? That's just a sense that I have. I don't think these were just words that he said, like, oh, oh, shalom. I think that with the, the giving of the shalom, God was supernaturally doing something very unique for this family so much so in verse 13 and if the house is worthy let your peace come upon it so they're still evaluating but if it's not worthy let your peace return to you i.e. if you get into that house and in further conversation those individuals actually turn and they say now wait a second maybe we misunderstood that's not what we actually believe we don't know about that It says, let your peace return back to you. So I think there's some kind of demonstrative sense of the presence and of the peacefulness and the provision, the total wellness upon a family that God was dropping on these individuals who were being gracious hosts to Christ's disciples. Isn't that beautiful to think about? And through that, what did these disciples learn? This is where we need, this is a little place where we can find a little application through this through discovering that they could trust in god in the details of life all the way down to what they were going to eat that day was it the uh, the lord's prayer give us this day (laughs) our daily bread and they were learning to trust in the lord in the very details the minute details of their life for provision what they were going to eat the clothing that they would wear the food their drink their shelter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think it forged in them a confidence that Jesus is building in them and he builds it in them and he builds it in them until eventually he says, and by the way, you're going to the Gentiles too. We've trusted him this long. We've come this far with him. Where else are we going to go, Lord? You, you, you're you the one that has words of life. He has, He's knitting their hearts to him and I think that that's what God does with all of his children. He wants to knit our hearts to him and he wants us to find daily trust in the essentials of life, of his provision to meet our needs. We don't have ministries like this, but do we have ministries? Well, of course we do. And in those ministries, some of us are tent makers like Paul, but in those ministries, we need to trust in the Lord every step of the way. And it's amazing how every step along the way, even now, God always provides for his lowercase those who have been sent to do the work of ministry, he always provides for those individuals. I, I, I don't have time to, to uh, enumerate on the many occasions that Lisa and I have seen the Lord provide for us in ways that clearly could have and could only have been from his hand of provision. And it was always through his saints. Every single time, every step of the way. And every time we found ourselves where we're, you're hang, we've, we'd feel like we're hanging on the side of a cliff. We don't, we don't know if we're going to make this one, Lord, but we're, we're hanging in there. God always provided every single time. And we've never been without food or clothing or shelter, the basic necessities of life. You can trust him too, I promise you. Now let's finish this up. A couple more verses. Verse 14, this is where it kind of gets a little serious. And whoever does not receive you, because there may be some that turn and and your peace comes back to you. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you leave that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Refusal to heed the message, in essence, is rejection of the message. Rejection of the message is thus rejection of Jesus who came in the flesh as Messiah. So we see here in verse 14 that these unworthy hosts who have decided that they no longer want to support them and have moved them on, they've consciously decided to not believe the message brought by these disciples. Now, the, again, they've had irrefutable confirmation, confirming signs that what they are saying and doing could only be from God, but they've chosen to believe their scribes and Pharisees. They've chosen to believe their shepherds. They've chosen to believe that they must be doing this by the power of Satan, and they've, and they've moved them on. Jesus tells them, Jesus tells his disciples that when this happens, notice again here in verse 14, when this happens, he says, leave that house. Leave that city. And when you leave, symbolically, well, you're, you're actually going to do this, but it is it represents something deeper than just the actual shaking of the dust off your feet. As you do this, the act of shaking the dust off your feet, it seems is to be understood best as a symbolic act of renunciation, a symbolic act of their rejection and what it will lead to, and clearly we see here that it's going to be leading to judgment, which in verse 15 Jesus makes abundantly clear, truly I say to you it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. So the shaking of the dust off their feet to the people in that house, and if they leave that city, if the entire city is like against them, however that may have worked out, and they kind of give them this visual sign of shaking dust off their feet. It was their way of letting them know that judgment will come upon you and upon your house and upon the people in this entire city who have rejected the message of Christ. And it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Was the uh, judgment at Sodom and Gomorrah pretty severe? It was, it was incredibly severe. Everybody, every person that was in Sodom and Gomorrah, except for Noah uh, and, and his wife, she looked back, shouldn't have looked back, but all those people that, that stayed behind, um, hellfire and brimstone from heaven, demolished, burned and incinerated Sodom and Gomorrah. It's gonna be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day. Well, what day is that? Was the day of judgment? Well, what's the day of the judgment? Well, we know in Revelation 20 that the day of judgment is the day of the second death of when um, all are going to be cast from, you know, everybody who's in Hades. Um, Hades gave up their dead. I'm looking at my clock. I don't know if I want to read all this. The dead were judged. I'm going to get to these two right here. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire Here's that day of judgment. Here's the second death, the lake of fire. If you thought hell and Hades was bad, it seems like the lake of fire is going to be even worse, and I don't know how to give degrees to that. I just, logically, I don't know how to give different degrees between hell and the second death, the lake of fire. But uh, there obviously is going to be some kind of, of, of worsening, I'm guessing, because it's, um, it's, it seems like it's a, a permanency. Well, it was already permanent, so I... It's hard to describe this, but it's going to be worse for those who have rejected the message of Jesus Christ than it was as, as heinous as the sins were in Sodom and Gomorrah. A, gr- a more heinous sin is that of rejecting the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kind of judgment against the heinousness of sin that was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, it's going to be even worse for the cities that reject the message of Jesus Christ. That, that's even more heinous the sin of unbelief and of blatantly rejecting the message of Christ than what they were doing in Sodom and Gomorrah and they will be thrown into the lake of fire on that final day and we might say that that's the place where there's the weeping and the gnashing of teeth the message here that Jesus gives to his disciples couldn't be clearer can you kind of feel the weight of that Jesus telling his disciples hey here's what here's your ministry go do it If they reject you and it gets to the point where you need to leave, your peace will come back on you. Shake the dust off your feet and keep on moving. The judgment that's going to fall on those individuals for the rejection of that message will be worse than what happened to the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now get out there and get busy. Go fish for men. Go fish for men. I don't know about you, but that motivates me. Do you know of anybody in your life that needs the Lord? Are there any individuals that you know that perhaps are lost currently and need the Lord? Anyone whose name wasn't found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a very real place. I don't want anybody going there, to be honest with you. I don't want anybody going there, and I hope that your compassion for lost people is the the same as Jesus was, and that you don't want to see anybody go there, and so you're so inclined and moved in your in your bowels, at a guttural level, you feel a little sick to yourself because you know that there's people out there that need the Lord. And I'm convinced that the lar- one of the largest, if not the largest harvest in, in perhaps America, but for for certain here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, let me tell you this, it's not the atheists. I, I don't know about you, but as I run into people and meet people, I'm not meeting atheists out there. I'm not even meeting agnostics. You know who I'm meeting? I'm meeting nominal Christians. Nominal meaning in name only. Were you here last week? Did you hear Kate's testimony? People who wrongly thought they came to faith because they just were told if you say some words, just say the words, and then you get baptized. You're in. You're secure. But they've but they realize I still live a very sinful life. I don't even. Oh, feel too bad about it, and I don't really desire to walk closely with the Lord. And then whenever they're and then whenever they're called on it, they always say, Oh, you're that's legalism. I got baptized when I was four years old. I repeated a prayer. They may not even have said the prayer. They might have just heard somebody say it for them. But they're so convinced. It seems to me that the the harvest in where we're harvesting mostly it's the difficulty of, getting, of convincing people that they're actually, that their life, and in the, in one of the best ways to, to do ministry to them is say, does, your, does the inner part of your heart look like the Beatitudes, truly? Whenever you see that Jesus is preaching here, these, these inner attitudes, the Beatitudes, does that, is that really what's reflective of you? I loved it when Kate said, I looked into the scriptures and I didn't see me. I actually started taking seriously what I saw in the scriptures, and when I read it, it wasn't me. And and when I finally got honest with myself, the Lord brought to my heart, the Spirit of God brought to my heart, that's not you. You weren't really converted. So we have a lot of people in our harvest, perhaps around us, that we may even wrongly assume that they're saved. Don't know. We know that they're not really living for the Lord, making church a part of their life, a biblical community, of trying to love the body of Christ and share their gifts within the body of Christ. That's not who they are they're out kind of still doing their party thing, but if you challenge them on it, they're gonna raise the, oh, I believed in Jesus flag. I think that that's one of the largest harvests that we have that we're dealing with today. So be praying for your family, praying for yourself, praying for your coworkers, whoever it may be, because the day of judgment's coming. I don't want anybody to go there. I want all to come to saving faith and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.